Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm sitting here. My guest today is the brilliant Mark Andrees. And if you're using the internet, you pretty much have him to thank. Um, Mark invented Mosaic and Netscape and is also among the leading VCs in the world at his company, Andrees and & Horowitz. And is someone I've been lucky enough to become quite friendly with over the last few years and has been very helpful uh, behind the scenes with Billion. So, Mark Andreessen, thanks for being here. It's an honor. Here being your your office, yes, by the way, yes. but thanks for being in your office on a Saturday yes. to talk to me. So I was just with a bunch of VCs uh, over the last few days, and the highest thinking compliment so, uh, that I saw people give was that somebody was an abstract thinker and they understood systems. Mm-hmm. And that's something that said about you in the New Yorker article that was written about you. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a systems thinker? Yeah, so maybe let's try to make it start with concrete. Let's start with concrete and then maybe make that concept itself That'd be great. more abstract. Yeah. So the, the concrete thing. So just think, think about it through the lens of a new tech product, which is kind of the center of what we do, which is just like if you're not a systems thinker, basically you say is I'm going to build a really great product, right? And then it's I'm going to have a really great product and it's going to be great because it's a really great product, right? Yes. Um, right. You know, the systems thinking mode is like, okay, that's, that's, that's just the first step because it's not just about the product. Like, it's about, okay, now the product is going to enter into the marketplace, right? And then there, there are going to be customers that are going to have a point of view uh, on your product. And there are going to be competitors that are going to be trying to take you out with a better product. And there are going to be, you know, retail, you put your product in retail and the retailers are going to try to gouge you on price and make your product uneconomic to manufacture. And the press is going to write, you know, a review of your product. And maybe the reviewer is going to have a really bad day and he's going to say horrible, horrible things. And, you know, your employees are, are, you know, you, your employees are, are hard at work. They build the first product and you assume they're going to be there with you to build the second product. And maybe they will, maybe they won't because maybe somebody else will hire them. And so you sort of basically with any kind of creative endeavor, anything that we do in our world, and this this is, you know, for products or, or for companies, they're, they're launching into technically what's called, a, it was actually a mathematical term, complex adaptive system, the world, complex adaptive system. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of inherently, it's not a predictable system. Um, it's not a linear system. Um, it doesn't behave in ways that you can expect. In fact, kind of by definition. So they say complex because it's just, it's, you know, many, many, many dimensions and variables. And then adaptive, like it changes, like things change. The introduction of the new product changes the system and then the system recalibrates around the product. And so as a consequence, like you just, you have to, to, to launch a new tech product and have it succeed, you have to have a keen awareness of all of the different elements of the system. You have to have a willingness to engage in the entire system you know, it's a gigantic problem generally if you're in denial about that, right? If you're not willing to think in system sure. terms, right? And so that, maybe that'd be the, the starting point to at least understand what this means kind what, of in, what in our systems, world. When, when do you think, so for artists, because we've talked a lot about how there are, are many similarities between what people in your world do and people in my world do. When do you want to let that stuff, I have two questions. One is how does someone train themselves to become a systems thinker? But two is, and I guess reverse it, that's the second one. The first one is, when should a creator, an ideator, begin thinking of all of those uh, potential impediments or how to flip those impediments to a strength? And when should they be trying just to ideate? Right. So you may know there's actually been a lot of work done on actually analyzing the source and causes and effects of of creative achievement, creative success. There's been a whole bunch of interesting uh, sort of things that have come out of that. It's sort of a subfield of psychology. In sociology, and there was just a study that just was in, on, on Twitter in the last week. The claim of the study, I haven't read the study in detail, but the claim of the study was, and this is art, this is like fine art, so it's like paint, painting as an yes. example, kind of you know, very pure version of art, let's say. But even for like paintings, it's, it's creative achievement and creative success, creative success of of creative work. Is it caused more by the quality of the work itself or by the social network of the artist? I saw that study. Is, is that right? The friends of the artist, and what you find is a lot of 
pure creatives will will think about that question and they'll find it offensive because it, the whole point of being a creative, a creator, is I have a vision and I create. And it's sort of a, you know, it's sort of a, um, it's, it's, it just seems kind of self-evident. Obviously the world is going to appreciate what, what, what I create. Like it's, it's, you know, if it's a sufficient quality level, like it, it's, if the world does not appreciate it, it's the world's fault. The more pragmatic view is that art is art, even just pure art, art is in the mind of both the creator and the viewer. Like what is the creative value of a painting if nobody sees it or if when people see it, they don't like it? Uh, of course, and, and so the, the pure creative would like to believe that's the viewer's fault, right? That's the audience's fault. And I'm sure you know people like this. Or the timing is wrong. Well, they're, 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 timing is a gigantic complex, complexifier, to, to use Jeff Bezos' yes. new favorite word. Um, yes. uh, the ti- timing is a giant X factor, right? We, we should talk about timing because that's a giant X factor in the, in the way these systems work. Yes. But fundamentally, it's this thing. Is like I, I just, I view, I, when I was a creator in the form of when I was building software, or now that I'm more in, in the role of you know, funding and supporting creators, I just view it as, as creativity as a collaborative exercise between the creator and the, and the audience. And I, and I think that's very natural. I think it's a, hu- it's a system. It's a human system. Right, and so and so, therefore, it's a responsibility. In my view, it's a responsibility of the artist to be willing to engage in that, and willing to be practical about that, and willing to think hard about that, and willing to do things required to get work in front of people. And and so, it's easy for me to have an opinion about that for painters, and I, I that's not my field, and so I'm, I'm just that's just kind of random opinion. I will tell you, in tech, this is a really big difference between success and failure, right? For, for what we do, it's like the, the the entrepreneur who expects the market to just automatically appreciate the product and buy. It's the classic: um, if I build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to my door. Is the old cliche? It's like, well, no, they won't. Like the world is busy. <laughs> like, right. People already have stuff going on. People don't wake up in the morning and say, God, I, I can't wait right. until I find out what this person I've never heard of in California has invented. Like that's not how the world works. You have to inject yourself into the right. world. And so in our world, the successful people are, are the ones who are able to do the creating and are able to then kind of push into the world. As Steve Jobs got, uh, put a ding in the universe. The people who are actually willing to carry the idea forward and proselytize it and evangelize it and argue it av- and, and, and advocate for it and, and make sure people see it and make sure it succeeds. And so either you have to be able to do that or you have to find somebody who, who could do it with you or for you. Irving Azar for Don Henley and Glenn Fry or uh, Albert Grossman from Dil- although Dylan's a complicated question but when you look at so when when artists like uh, when Hemingway would mythologize you know if you read a movable feast well I, I guess he was in the salon with all these people but uh, who then he was in the middle of a network he right? was in the middle of a network though he wouldn't have thought of it that way probably yeah. so do you think that uh, some people are just instinctively do that as part of their art is the broadcasting of their art. So Brian Eno has a term yes. uh, you may have heard called senius. Have you heard? Have you heard this term? No, I love Eno's work. Okay, so I, Brian Eno has this term called senius. Um, Kevin Kelly and Stuart Brand and others have talked about this at length, and I think it's right. Which is, it's this. Let's call it. An, let's start with it as it's an amazing coincidence. It's, it's an amazing coincidence how when there's a major new artistic movement, it's an amazing how there's a scene. There's quite literally a scene, and so Hemingway was part of a scene. You know, there's there's been examples. Yeah, Patty Smith's book talks about this, right? Just Kids talks about it in a great way. Exactly. The scene right. New York at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, one great example. Um, you know, we I, we I've spent a lot of time with 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 our friend Michael Lovitz over the years, understanding kind of how how this has worked, how creativity works in entertainment. And he, he's he says it basically he's at 100 percent of the time it's a scene. So, for example, he cites the great scene in comedy when he was coming up was Saturday Night Live um, in the Second City, Saturday Night Live phenomenon in the mid 70s. Um, and it was it was this you know Saturday Night Live shows up on TV in you know 1975, and people are like, oh my, you know, this is like a brand new thing. Like, where did this come from? And it turns out it was all these people. It was you know it was Chevy. And Gilda Radner and Bill Murray and you know John Belushi and all these and Lord Michael and the Canadians kind of the and, those and the Canadians, Canadians too the, and the SCTV, SCTV thing. the SCTV right. scene exactly right and like they all knew each other right they they, they all knew each other coming up 
And, and basically, you find you find this like comedy com is actually a great example of this. You, you just see this. They, they inevitably like there was there's the Judd Apatow scene. Like there's a set of those people. There's like the Seth Rogen, you know, kind of at this. They're at the center of these networks, and then these these people then spin off and they do they do their own work and they be, and become very successful. Um, you know, more, most recently like the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler kind of thing was a scene. I guess also with sure absolutely the upright they citizens brigade own, yeah. and Second City kind of thing. And so it, it's it's this thing. And so is it a is it a um, you know what, what? What was it? Is that? Is that? Is that? Is that? Because these are creative geniuses. These are clearly creative geniuses on their own, but like they weren't out in the wilderness somewhere. Well, because right? they got recognized. But what I took from that that art, the article, I saw the art. I didn't read the study, but I saw the Times article about it. Was that artists will recognize other part of what happens? This amplifying effect is that if you're good, and what I took from it is if you're really good at this stuff, don't necessarily think about people. Always think about the buyer. People are always like, "How can I get an agent? How can I get a buyer?" As opposed to how can I show my work to other artists who can help platform it? Uh, and that's what okay. I took from that article was that that there are these that in fact it's not how can I it's the best way to get an agent is to have some artist who thinks you're great who's represented by that agent tell that agent right? Do you think system thinking systems thinking because like if you look at Dylan as an example I'm just to try to put it in my world a bit right he did come here come to New York and then enter and take over this this scene that exists. Do you think someone has to calculate that stuff, or do you think there are people who just naturally do it? No, so I think it's a complex adaptive system. It, it has feedback loops, what are called feedback loops, and so it, it you know, and some people get in the in the position of the feedback loop starts to hit. It's it's almost a little bit. The feedback loops are funny things. It's like what you know. It's like, well, there's this concept in economics that actually derived from from something out of the out of the Christian Bible called the Matthew effect. It's sort of like in a lot of these fields, like recognition begets recognition, success begets success, reputation begets reputation, right? So it's it's a positive feedback loop, and you see you see this when kind of people are on the rise in their careers, right? It's it's well, you see this. I was with people from Twitter the other day that were talking about this too about one of the challenges of Twitter in terms of growing it, right, is that the people who are verified and have a good following are able to very quickly make their following bigger. Yeah. But for someone who's just starting, it's really hard now yeah. to amass an, an right. audience. Just like, by the way, it's very hard to become a new recognized painter. It's very hard to <laughs> write a screenplay that gets made. These are so-called nonlinear dynamical systems, in, in, technically. Um, uh, and, and they have these they have these feedback loops. And so, and, and there's kind of, and it, it's, a lot of this goes back to kind of the human attitude of the people involved in doing the work, because it's like, there's two ways to look at that. One is, oh my God, life is unfair. And like, this is just fundamentally, you know, horrible. And we should figure out a way to like reform these systems. And so there's a much more equal distribution of, of you know, of, of returns and of results. The other way to look at it is, it, it, it is, it, it's the human system. It is humanity. It is how we are, we are social animals. We do yeah. care what other people think. We do care what the other, to your point, we care what the other experts think. We do care what our friends think and we respond to those things. And part of what makes an, makes some, a, a creative project valuable is the fact that people appreciate it. And, and just the, the nature of it is people are going to tend to appreciate the things that other people are appreciating. And so it, it is what it is. And therefore, if you're going to be a creative professional, you should lean into that. You, you, should, you should take that seriously and, and you, should, you should consider that part of the challenge. As com because I think that because the the, the 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 alternate path is is bitterness, right? And and you see we you see this in the valley. You run into these you have these brilliant programmers. They've been working for ten years on some project and like they've got the code running. It's all working and like nobody you know, it's, it's not out there. Nobody appreciates it. It's sitting on you know it's, a, it's sitting on a shelf in a lab somewhere, and they're just furious, right? And it's like well what have you done to try to inject this into the world? Well nothing. Well, why not? Well because it's it's my work is genius and people should appreciate it and it's their fault that right. they don't. I mean and, yeah what what and that will as as an individual that will poison you right. That will destroy you. Yes. Right. And so that's the 
that's the, you know, it's the, and that's why you have to be, I think, you know, you have to be really careful on these things, whether you're talking about society or whether you're talking about the individual. Because um, from a societal standpoint, you can level, level all kinds of accusations about unfairness. From an individual level, you really want, in my view, you want people, you want as an individual, you want to think, I can do this. I, I can go change the world. I can go affect things. It's going to be and you real. Should, and you're saying you shouldn't just um, rely on the fact that your work alone yeah, privately right. will do it. You should be proactive in yeah trying to get it out there. Well, so part of it is you should get into a scene. So this is part of it. Yes. But by the way, this also goes to another kind of view of unfairness right now, which is like, okay, why do all the great movies and TV shows get made in all? Why do the vast majority get made in LA? Like, that's so unfair to people. If you talk, there are people who like try to make movies in San Francisco and they'll tell you like, it's so unfair. Like, it's just so much easier to do this in LA. Like, it should be easier to do this. We get this in, start, in startup world. Like, why are a disproportionate number of the startups built in Silicon Valley? Isn't it unfair that you can't, you don't have equal odds of doing this if, if, if you're in Topeka? Well, well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is if I'm the end of, you know, I grew up in rural Wisconsin. Like, if, 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 if the job is to get enmeshed into the system, right, into the network, into the, then basically what you want to do as an individual is you want to get yourself into the scene. Yeah, Tony Shea calls them collision spaces. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, you got to get you got to get in the mix, right? And 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 if you're not willing to get in the mix, it's not their fault. It's your fault, right? As an again, as an individual. Yes, that, no. That, you're, that's you're, the healthy, no, because what we're talking about is people right? who right. What did Van Gogh's other than Van Gogh get to paint those paintings and feel that feeling? But his inability to talk to people, it, the work ultimately did him some good but not nearly the good it could have done him, right? right? right. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm completely open to the Emily idea. Emily Dickinson, the same thing. I'm completely open to the idea that there's an alternate universe, Brian Koppelman, uh, let's call him uh, Crian Boppelman, uh, yes. who's a you know machinist in you know Albany, New York, who's got a you know whole bunch of genius screenplays on the shelf. And you know someday he's going to die, and we're, somebody's going to, you know, his, his kids are going to discover, and they're going to publish them, and we're going to be like, oh my God, look at all these great TV shows that never got made, because the world wasn't enlightened enough to be able to go seek him out. But like, I, I'm open to the possibility that that person exists. I, like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> right, right. So you, you got to <laughs> right. find a way. You're saying that that you have to find a way to present yourself. But the challenge is, as you know, oftentimes the approach that people make has the opposite effect of what they hope, right? When they have a product. As someone has an idea and they see you in a mall and they come, a pro, right? It's like you, so that's another piece of it is how do you manage that? Uh, so that's the other thing. So there was a great, in our world, there was a great Dilbert strip uh, where um, where the pointy-haired boss says, you know, I have a great idea for a startup. Um, all I need is for, you know, somebody to, to do, to, to actually like write the code and do all the work. And, and Dilbert <laughs> says, the technical term for what you have is nothing. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so this is the other subtly, at least in my world, I suspect in your world also, but at least in my world, this actually turns out, you actually see this a lot. You'll see people say like, I have an idea, but it's such a good idea, I can't tell anybody about it. Right? Because they'll, they'll, they'll steal my idea. Yes. Right, and, and and at least in our world, like literally, it is. Therefore, what you now have is nothing. You know, it's amazing in our world. It's well, there's another great. I forget who said it. There's another great, great line. Somebody said that if, if you have a really, really great idea, like you you can shout it to the you can shout it to the rafters, and like still nobody's going to take it seriously. Like, like it's a, the world is filled with ideas. Like there is actually no idea shortage. And in fact, by the way, many people actually have the same ideas. And by the way, many of the ideas are actually reasonably obvious. Like, the, you know, the iPhone. We've all carried around these iPhones. Like, what a genius idea was the iPhone. Well, hey, how about a computer you can hold in your hand? Right. Like, how about a computer that you don't have to carry in a briefcase you can hold in your I hand? I mean, like, between William Gibson and, I mean, everybody's had Star the, Trek. Right. Freaking Star Trek. I had them on Star Trek in 1966. Like, it, 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 yeah, I want a computer I can hold in my hand. Like, the idea alone didn't get Steve Jobs anywhere. It was everything else that he did to make the idea a reality and get it and actually and actually get it into people's hands that mattered. And so, yeah, it's 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 this it's this attitude it's this attitude that says yeah. So the approach and by the way we get this all the time. You get the, you pitch. I'm a you know I'm a founder with an idea. 
Right. Doesn't mean anything. Like, I, you know, we've got an unlimited number of those. We can, we can, we can, we can, we can generate as many of those but, as we but want. But I guess what I'm asking is how do you learn to, how do you think, do you think one can learn to do both things, to be a, a to be the cr a creator, founder, creator, and the salesman of your own work? Like, yeah. how do you, how does one learn to do that? Yes. So first of all, I do think, but this way, um, this is again where I think systems thinking is actually helpful. So I should, we have a lot of this. So we'll, we'll have, we have a lot of sort of founders who are like classical engineers, and and they they you know they're sort of classical introverts. And the the idea of having to go kind of you know sell is like anathema. Like the idea you know, and they've got these kind of I would say misperceptions of the salesman as somebody who's wearing a shiny suit selling a use you know selling somebody something yes, that, perfect. that, that yes. they don't need. And so we we have a couple of responses to that. We have a specific response to that, which is actually the role of sales is at least in our industry is not to sell something they don't need. It's actually to help somebody buy what they actually do need. And we could have a long conversation about that. You're actually the, the really good salespeople in Silicon Valley who make a lot of money are become very personally bonded to their customers. They they end up going to their customers, you know, weddings, uh, you know, to their kids' weddings. Like they 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 become like very close allies to the careers of their customers. So we could have a long conversation about that. But it's a real form of value add to the customer. But but even deeper than that, the thing I tell the engineers is look. De dealing with customer dealing with customers it's 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 another systems problem like you 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 are the master of solving a systems problem which is how to get the computer to do what you want like people aren't computers they're different but there is a system for there is a system for dealing with people you can engineer a system for dealing with people and actually when you work with top end salespeople, what you find is they have incredibly elaborate like very real systems like very 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 like very thoroughly thought through kind of abstract systems of how they basically run like a large scale sales right. campaign and how they deal with the customer so for example there's a process in sales qualification which is you're basically trying to gauge like is the customer ever going to buy can anything? they buy can they buy and that's a very or there's actually orchestrated like there's whole multi-step processes there's whole flow, there's, there's entire software packages that get sold just to be able to track and manage that process and, and so i was telling engineers actually put your engineer hat on and think about it as an engineering problem, and you'll be able to figure it out. Like it's, and, and by the way, it's not you know it's not as hard as building an operating system. It actually is somewhat easier. Like you can figure this stuff out. Right. No, you have to want to. No, you have to want to. But but it, it, it's because the the typical approach, both to you and to me, is a uh, hey, we read my screenplay. My screenplay is really good. But in fact, you said something brilliant when you pointed us to that that piece about artists talking to artists because. I won't read anything that anybody sends me randomly, right? When someone contacts me online, please read my screenplay. It's like, no, but- And why but, not? Well, uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it's not there's nothing that's enticed me to read it that makes it seem, they haven't spun the, they haven't, they haven't enticed me by the, who they are yet, right? If it, now, if they're on Twitter and I'm on Twitter and somebody I know has put them in my life and they've, they have some sort of credibility because of the, some kind of social proof, then I, that might get me to have a conversation where I guide them into what they could do to put themselves in a position that someone will read their stuff. But if one of my writer friends or a producer friend or an agent says, uh, you got to check this thing out. Here's the reasons why. I'm immediately going to check it out. Right. Because it, they've, it's become elevated to a place that it's worth in, engaging with. Right. Also, I don't want to get sued. It's been qualified. Oh, I don't, don't want to get sued. sued. No, that's the other right, thing. I right. can't read stuff because you read stuff and you get sued. You, I mean, if that's you, if you were to have that same idea in some project later on down the road, someone could just sue you, you and, sue and you there's just, nothing right. that, that you can do about it. So, so you do think this can be this all can be taught, which is that's that's encouraging. You, you have to, I would say, you have to want to learn how to do it, and then at some point, look, you do have to have at some point you have to have the kind of personality, like if you're going to hate it. Like there, there are founders where they could they could actually totally understand the process of sales, and they're still just they're going to be so introverted as an example that they're just going to hate the interaction, and they're just going to you know can't wait until they can, you know stop talking to these people. Well, well, how, and, how in, that, in that case, then you then you start talking about building the team. How do you talk to people though who have that chip on their shoulder, like they look at someone like Elon 
as like, well, hey, that guy's just a, a showman. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, uh, forgetting it's not him specifically, but they almost feel like it cheapens what they do. Right. Like, right, uh, right. They, uh, Oh, this is, this is actually, it's actually interesting. Elon actually used to tell us. It's the Edison versus Tesla thing. Right. So, so, so actually in Edison's day, so Ed, you know, Edison is credited, you know, phonographing, of course, interlighting and all this stuff. And, and then Tesla was this guy who had all these super genius. Like, there's this huge debate over AC versus DC electricity. And there's an alternate power grid that we could have that runs a DC that's much better. And Tesla had that idea and this whole thing. And so there's this kind of engineer archetype of like Tesla was the, Edison was the showman. And he's a mediocre engineer, but he was the showman. And Tesla was the unappreciated genius. And it's like, it's a perfect example of this. It's like, okay, well, whose fault was that? Right. Right. Like, right. Te right. You're saying what it's Tesla's kept fault. Nikolai Tesla from like, I mean, the stuff Edison did to go promote his stuff, like it wasn't that, you know, it's the same thing. It wasn't that hard to figure out. There were lots of people in that era that wanted to finance, you know, as an example, Edison would raise all this money. Well, there were lots of people in that era who wanted to finance electricity. I mean, for, I mean, talk about like a growth and, market. And you take this into account yeah. in terms of who you're going to invest in. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and part of what you're taking into account is the messianic abilities that the person has, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. They have to care. Yeah. The world, the, as I say, the, the, the world is busy. There are 7 billion people on planet earth whose time is already fully allocated. <laughs> right. And so there has to be something about, uh, no, the work has to speak for itself. We'll, we, we can talk more about that, but then you, somebody has got to pick up the flag and carry it into the world. We'll make, talk make, about make, the work make, needs make the to stand for itself. Well, so then there is the other side of this, which is the work does, it, this is, none of this is an excuse for having the work not be good. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and so in the, the, the best, the best, the, the line I use all the time, the, the, the book I always recommend is Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up. It's a spectacular. Which is like one of the best books I've ever read. And it's a, it's a thin little book, basically. So how does Steve Martin succeed in comedy? Like, pretty interesting topic because he was, you know, people know, but like he was a gigantic success first in stand-up and then later later in, in, in film and, and, and other things. And and the, the thing he says, very straightforward in the book, he says, be so good, they can't ignore you, right? I often say, right and undeniable, when people complain to me on Twitter, I often say, well, this is unfair. So this, this is where you and I have a lot of similarity in this one. I, and it is one of the areas, which is I say, it's unfair. If you're a, a woman of color wanting to make it as a screenwriter, it's really hard. The deck is stacked against you because of who the buyers are. However, once it's unfair, once we acknowledge that, all you can do is write an undeniable script. That's the only thing you can do is write something undeniable that breaks through. Now, that's unfair. Well, I would say that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is you can get yourself into a scene. Sure. So find a scene. Yes, great. Right. Perfect. Those are, the, those are the two things. I'm saying, and, and I, what I like about this is this is a new perspective on, the sh on, the, on this podcast because- I, partially because of my own life experience, which is Dave and I wrote this thing in a basement, as you know, as we just talked about in your podcast, but the, 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 your idea that you should consciously get into a scene, you should consciously get into a scene is a, and I know you said it's Brian Eno's thought, but it is really, as you're saying it to me, it is, it is smart. It makes a lot of sense. Well, another way to think about it is big, big, would you rather be a big fish in a small pond, right? Or a, or a, or a small but fish it's both in a big things, pond. Right? You have to write the small thing that's fish on the, a, Small fish in a big pond. And then the small fish has the best product anybody's and, ever seen. And, like and that, that's the formula. Have you read Just Kids, the Patty Smith book? No. Oh, you'd love it. It's a great audiobook. But Patty Smith comes to New York and meets Robert Maplethorpe the first day that she's in New York. <laughs> right. And then the two of them end up in Warhol, like in the world that Warhol and Lou Reed, those people were all in. Yeah. And it they're just lived at the Chelsea Hotel and they bounced around with those people. So Patty had to do the genius work, but right. then when she did. Right. People were there yeah. to appreciate it. And so by I, the way, and as you know, like you, you know, so most people who are like in this bit, most most people who like love the art of what they do want there to be more great art, and they want there to be more great artists. Yes, and they, they want to be the kind of person who's able to go find other great artists and talk to the great artists. And then most people, by the way, and then you know, I'm in the financing business. Like we're we are dying to finance the next great startup. Like people talk about like raising venture like venture capitals. It's like you got to run all these gauntlets to do it, or like it's so you know whatever they they fund all this you know they won't fund. It, and it's like we're dying to fund the next Google. Like we're, we can't, 
can't wait. Right. So, yeah, right? of course. So just for God's sake, figure out, you know, get, figure out a way to build it and bring it to us. Right. Please. Yes. Though, uh, to get to you, somebody has to be credibly recommended. Well, to this you. is the thing. Okay. So then this gets to a concept that I, I talk, so this goes directly to what we're talking about. So you described the process of getting somebody to, re, you to read somebody's screenplay. And, and basically it's, they have to, there has to be a referral. There has to be like a, some sort of warm referral. Either a referral or the only other way is over a period of time, you've impressed me somehow yourself. Right. You've got, you've got, yeah, exactly, right. Independent of the specific thing that you're that you're you're trying to get yes. right. So, so it's this, it's sort of a very similar thing in venture, which is it's. Um, I mean, there are certain people where it's just like their reputation precedes them, and they want to come in and pitch us. We're going to take the pitch. And some of those people, by the way, you discover on Twitter. Like, so that that's that's a real thing. Um, but more generally, it's a it's a referral business. Um, and so, and I I figured this out early on. When we were starting. I talked to friends of mine at one of the top firms in the industry that's now a fifty year old venture firm, one of these legendary firms. And he said, in the entire history of the venture firm, they funded exactly one startup pitch that came in cold. Right over fifty years now, they funded like a thousand that came in warm, and they funded one that came in cold. And, and, and I was and 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 so anyway, so so then it's like okay, well, and again, is, isn't that unfair? Like, okay, so that, so so that's where I get into what I call the test with a capital T, the test. And the test is basically the test to get to us or get to any VC is can you get one warm introduction, just one? Can you? And in our world, it, you know, your world is maybe agents or whatever, or other creatives. In our world, it's an angel investor, it's a seed funder, it's a professor, um, it's a manager at one of the big existing tech companies, right? It's someone you think is smart. Yeah, somebody I and think knows is smart. people. But there's there are thousands of those people out there who I will take that call for. Yeah, like I could call you and tell you, for example. But, but somebody should, by the way, I won't. Let me just say clearly, I will not. No, but you actually but you, you have this world. You could. You, you have these somebody like base. if a director of engine. You know, I don't know if if a if a, you know, there's, I don't know, there's like a thousand executives at Facebook. Facebook's like a 40,000 person company. There's like a thousand executives at Facebook in decision-making capacity. If any one of the thousand calls up and says, I got this kid, I think you should meet. It's like, yes, I'll, I'll take that meeting. So it's like, and, and again, it's just one, right? And so the test is, can you get one person to refer you? Right. And it's like, okay, like, and, and think of the number of ways you could get one person to refer you. You could go get a job and you could go impress a manager. And then that manager makes the call. It's an incredibly good, that is an incredibly right. good test, right. by the way. And if you can't pass the test, the test to get a warm inbound referral into a venture firm, then what that indicates is you are going to have a hell of a time as an entrepreneur. You are going to hate being an entrepreneur because guess what you have to do? Once you raise money, we're the easy, I would say like, we're, the, we're the easy, we're viewed as the hard part, we're the easy part of the process. Once you raise money from us is when the pain begins. And the pain is trying to get other people to say yes to you. It's, the pain specifically is trying to get people to work for you and they, they all have choices, right? And so you've got to convince them to come work for you instead of somebody else. Is to try to get a customer to buy a product, and the customers are overwhelmed with new products they could buy. And so to get to get to, to actually sell something to somebody. And then at some point, you're going to have to raise money again, right? And, and you raise money from new, new, new people each round. And at some point, you're going to have to go get somebody else to say yes. And so if you can't get a warm inbound to us, how are you possibly going to be able to function in the environment in which you're, you're now going to be operating, where you're going to have to get all these other people to do, to do stuff for you? And, and so that's the thing. And so that's why there basically is, there, there are no... For, for all intents and purposes, I'm open to this again. I'm open to the idea that there's the undiscovered genius out there. It how many, cold, how many cold ones have you funded? Never. I mean, zero. Zero yeah, cold. Zero. Or me, yeah. zero yeah. from an elevator pit, from no. someone walking up to you. Because what you find, because what you find, if you get face to, if you, if you find yourself face to face, what you find is they have, what you find is the reason that they can't pass the test is because they have the chip on the shoulder. And when you say, I'm pro chips on shoulders, there's a lot. We both have a chip on our shoulder. There's a giant advantage to having a chip on the shoulder, but there's a very dysfunctional version of the chip on the shoulder, which is I should be appreciated. I should be appreciated for who I am. I shouldn't have to stoop. I should not have to stoop to do this stuff, right? I shouldn't have to get the warm. But of course, to 
sell in the world, you have to be willing to walk into a room yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and do the thing. Raising venture, I would say this, raising venture is the beginning of the pain of having to deal with people. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get yeah, people to do makes stuff total for sense. You. But now, right. uh, just in case people don't know who are on, uh, listening to this podcast, you know, Mark, you didn't come from wealth and you didn't come, nobody like sort of handed all this to you. You, and when I sort of glibly at the beginning of the podcast said, if you're using the internet, it's because of Mark. I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic. You invented the first available browser that allowed people to browse the internet. You invented Mosaic and then you invented Netscape, which became the most widely used uh, browser. And everything that's happened since, you came up with an interface that people could use to surf the internet. How did you find a way to get your, well, I guess first I want to know, when did you start to realize that you thought differently than most of your peers? And like, you know what I mean? How do we know that we're right or we're delusional? What I'm interested in is when you st- realized you saw the world differently, how did you stay sane about it? I mean, the honest answer to the question is I went to work. What do you, what do you mean? So I, I went to college, I immediately got a job. And I just, I, I worked all through high school. And so I just, I, I knew I wanted to have a job and I to make some money. But so I, I, I sat down with the U.S. News and World Report. They used to do the print magazine where they ranked all the colleges and universities. They ranked all the degree programs uh, in the country. And then they ranked the starting salaries uh, at e, for, each, for each level. Um, and so I literally got to the page where it was like, uh, for people with uh, bachelor's degrees uh, coming out of American universities, because I knew they didn't want to stay in school longer than I had to. What was the, what was the salary ranking? Or top salary on down for the degrees. And the top one was, was double E. And I was like, okay, double E, sounds good. Uh, and then I went to the double E page and I was like, okay, what are the top double E schools? And it was like MIT, Stanford. Well, those are obviously out of reach for people where I come from. You mean you just decided that that was out Nobody of reach? Nobody where I come from goes to Stanford or MIT. And like, so you didn't think you could? Oh, of course not. No, no chance. Amazing. No, no, no possibility whatsoever. And I, n- nobody ever has. And it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a possibility. And so number three was University of Illinois. Which I was like, oh, interesting. Like it's it's I was in Wisconsin, and so Illinois is actually it's actually like it's across the border. It's about six hours away, and it's a, it's a state school, and so I'd have to I'd have to pay out of state tuition. Yes, but it was it was you know much cheaper than you know the the, the sort of the, the full private schools. And I was like number it's number three in the country, right for double. And I was like, this is great. So I, I I went and applied, and they they love out of school out of state students uh, because they they pay full load, right? So then I showed up and got a job, and the, the job I got was was and I always enjoy, I always enjoy coding, and so I got a, I got a job in a software lab, and I just like absolutely loved it. It was my kind of first time I was getting like actually paid to like write code and and, and work on things in the physics department in Illinois, um, and then that that ultimately led to an internship at IBM, um, and then that ultimately led to a job at NCSA, which is the 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 center where we did all the work on Mosaic. And so, and so part, and you know, there's a big, there's a big, I don't know, luck or timing or whatever component to it, which is like, it, it so happened that when I got to Illinois, there was this environment, right. With all this, with all the, by the way, with all this, all this federal funding to be able to do, you know, we had, we basically had the modern internet at Illinois. There were four universities that got, there were four universities in the U S that had gotten funded in the eighties, um, to basically effectively build, uh, they were supercomputer centers. There was when supercomputers cost $25 million. Yeah. So there was that. And then they basically built what they call the NSF net, which was basically the, the internet. Um, and so there, there was, it was Cornell, San Diego, uh, Illinois and Pittsburgh. Um, they were all state, they were actually all, all uh, three of the four were state schools. And so we basically had on campus, we had actually the modern, we didn't have the, the web yet, but we had like the modern internet. Like we had high speed broadband, including even to some of the dorms. Um, you know, there were supercomputers, there were all these graphical workstations, which at the time was a, was a big deal. And so it, there, there was a part of that. It, it, was, an, it, was, a, it was a scene. It was a scene. <laughs> yeah, sure. It was were, a scene. It was a, a scene. It was a fertile environment where, where with people who were interested in this. And then, and then there was some set of resources. Did you have the notion in your head that you were going to change the world? No, of course not. You no. really didn't. No, so no, your ambition, no. this is important for our, yeah. for like, I think people who want to do creative work, like the, the, the sort of how grand 
can the thoughts be? Like, for, for real, were you trying to just solve a specific problem, or did you have a sense that uh, if we do this work, we might actually be able to influence the world? So it's a, it was a, I, I didn't have the vocabulary then, but I have it now. So it was a complex adaptive system problem. And, the, and it was as follows, which is because of all this federal funding for the supercomputer centers, we had a lot of the modern internet running at Illinois. The students could use it, the faculty used it, the researchers used it. My, my work, all my work there was, was in this environment. The assumption was, so the, a lot of technology was there. The assumption was that you would use it while you're there. And then when you leave, you would stop using it. Right. Right. So you would be on email. It was literally, the assumption was email, email at the time. You'd be on email. Oh, we're on the university email, but university then you wouldn't have email. any use for it even when you're gone. Who, who would you email right. in the real world? Like it was an inconceivable concept, right? And so literally you would graduate and you would go buy a PC in the store when you graduate or have, have a PC assigned to you in your job and it wouldn't be hooked up to the internet because why would you hook up to the internet? Like there was no point to it, right? And so so the overwhelming assumption was you'd use it here and then you wouldn't you wouldn't use it in the real world. And this was, this was part of the cultural divide at the time between like, you know, it's part of the, the nerd, you know, sort of the nerd culture, the academic culture, and then, and then the quote unquote real world. And so there was just this massive my favorite <laughs> Sonal, who's, uh, who's who's with us, will appreciate. Will preach as a former Wired editor. Will appreciate. I so I was working on Mosaic. It's the middle of the night. Um, working on Mosaic, and I go to the little corner store, fight my way through the blizzard most most nights, and and um, uh, in, in uh, the plains of Illinois, and, and go to the corner store to get something to eat at like two in the morning. Um, and and uh, you know check the newsstand, uh, check it out, and there's, there's you know the first issue of Wired magazine. Right. And so I'm like, oh, this is, you know, it's, wow. This is like, the, finally, somebody made a magazine for me. Like, you know, somebody made a magazine yes. that takes like computers seriously. Like, how about, how about that as an idea for a magazine? Right. So this is like 1993. So, so I'm like, okay, great. I buy it. Um, and I'm like, okay, it's pretty good. So I, I buy it. I buy my, buy my food. I go back to my, my, my little office in the basement, uh, in the, in the, in the lab. Um, and I, and I'm reading the magazine. I'm reading the, it's going on and on about interactive TV and the information superhighway and this and that and digital tsunami and this and that and the whole, you know, the manifesto, the whole thing. Didn't mention, didn't mention the internet. There was no mention of the internet. In the it magazine. was all virtual reality. Then, virtual so, reality, yeah. and yeah, he's a lawnmower man, and like it was, it was. I remember the beginning of Wired. There was really no internet. Well. The internet wasn't even. The internet did not even merit a mention. But AOL, and so, wait, AOL was around in '94, yep. right? '93. AOL was not. How did AOL internet? work back then? It was entirely a self. It was a so-called walled garden. It was a self-contained environment. You mean so you would get on the internet to no reach? If I was at home and I, my modem. You would dial Where in, was my modem dialing into? AOL, just AOL. Only their office, like their yeah, servers. Yeah, yeah. Their servers, their content. And everything happened within that within world. Within AOL, yeah. So yeah. even if we thought that was the internet, it, yeah. it wasn't. You didn't actually. have access. You would know. So you would not have thought it was the internet because you would not have what thought. What would I have thought? You would have thought you were on AOL. Right. So AOL was an advanced version of what was called a bulletin board system. Yes, it was a bulletin a, a board. That's right. But the, I remember. remember the BBSs were all self contained. You didn't. You would log, remember in the old BBS days. You would log into each BBS separately. I remember. You, there was no. There was no connectivity between the BBSs. There was no kind. So at the. So you had AOL at the time. You had AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy, Prodigy were the yeah. three big ones, and they, you couldn't even interconnect between between those. So that that's where where you were then. When when you were working in the middle of the night, I had this question to ask you. I'm so glad you said that. What kind of like how adrenalized were you when you were building Mosaic? I'm, I'm talking right, about the creative, right, creative part engine. of this. Like, how adrenalized were you when this was happening? Not real. Well, this is the thing, is, is the conventional wisdom was so against. It was a little bit- I'm fascinated that's by That's why this. I tell the story of the magazine. It's just like, I just like, I read the magazine and I'm just like, okay, my work doesn't, I mean, not my, my nobody <laughs> knew who I was, but like, right. no, the this work entire doesn't matter. domain in which I'm operating does not matter. Does not even merit a mention. Like, awesome. it's just like, okay, and I'm just like, I don't know what, like, I, I'm, I'm just a kid. Like, I don't know what else, so I just go back to work. Like, I can't do any of this other stuff. I'm not at Time Warner building, you know, the, I don't know, interactive TV. I'm not at Viacom building or whatever VR thing they were doing. Like, I've just, I'm working on this internet thing. And even though they don't respect it, it's the thing I can work on. So I'll just work on it. And so I, we, we just, we, you know, I, I, we, just went back, we just went back to work. Um, it didn't really start, we didn't really start to get positive feedback until, you know, sort of spring 93. Um, we talked about the feedback cycles. We got in, 
we, so what we did get is we did get a positive feedback cycle going quickly. And the positive feedback cycle basically was not surprising, but like the more people who had browsers, then the more people who would put up web pages, the more people who put up web pages, the more people would want to have browsers. And you started realizing that. Yeah, we started seeing it. And that. did that get exciting to you personally? Well, guess what the guess how I started to experience that? How? Uh, customer support emails. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Complaints. Guess who got all the complaints? That's fantastic. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the complaints actually let you now. When you got the complaints, were you able to actually, and this might be one of the gifts you have, were you able to immediately go like, oh, this is good? Yeah, sure. Of course. That's awesome. Yeah, people Most care. of us would just crumble. People care. Well, people care. So, okay. So we're, here's the other fu funny part about it. We're operating, this whole thing is being operated on a, it's kind of a little bit of a rogue project, but it was un, uh, funded under an NSF grant, um, an R&D grant. So it, it, it was relevant enough to the grant that we had gotten that we kind of were, were able to do that, um, that, the, this, the, that the center had gotten. Um, so then we, literally it starts to work and it starts to get adopted. And like, it's, you know, it's like, okay, this is interesting. We start to get all these customer support emails and I'm like, I got a choice. I can either like answer all the emails or I can write more code. And so we actually wrote a grant application to the NSF to be able to hire a customer service team. Um, oh, that's awesome. To be able to actually like help people like get on the internet and do all this stuff. And guess what the reception was for that grant application? Yeah, I can imagine. Denied. Yes, of course it was denied. <laughs> well, because how are you going to really explain? Well, you didn't. Well, and the NSF's not in the business of finding a customer support operation. Like that's something that. A so did you rephrase it somehow? No, 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 no. We just like flipped, just flat out shot us down. And so I just, I just worked more. <laughs> well, so this is a, you just kept going, you just kept going. Yeah, I just kept going. And, you know, at some point. The, what? Um, well, and then, it, and it, but, but then it took, right? And then, and then this is the feedback loop thing, positive feedback loop took. And so then the, the weirdest thing happened, which is people started writing books about it. And it, this is actually really significant because the PCs at the time didn't actually have internet connectivity built into them. Uh, the PCs and Macs at the time, you, you bought them up out of the box. They didn't have the software required to get on the internet. And so the, but there was enough demand that the book publishers started to write books about how to internet. And those books would have a floppy disk in the back of the book and the floppy disk had the software you needed to load on your right. PC so that you could get online. And so that took some of the load off the, finally, I could just say, you should go read, you know, internet for dummies. And so that, that And were you that still helped. in college during yeah, all, still all college, that? Yeah. Still in college yeah. as it started yeah. to take off. As it started to go. How fun to talk about the New Yorker. Look, the New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. I subscribe. I have been a New Yorker subscriber for so long. It is so natural and easy to talk about the New Yorker. I mean, beyond publishing the best writers in the world, they hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling online and in print. The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, politics, news, international affairs, climate change, environment, pop culture, arts, fiction, food, humor, and cartoons. These are amazing writers writing about the stuff that I really care about. And if you listen to this podcast, the stuff that you really care about. And we're talking about people like Ronan Farrow, Hilton Alls, my friend Helen Rosner. These are brilliant writers who write about things as disparate and fascinating as the breaking news in Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves or the world of food in 2019. You can get 12 weeks for just six bucks, which is regularly 12 bucks plus a New Yorker tote bag. Home delivery of the print edition each week, unlimited access to NewYorker.com, and I take huge advantage of that. I'm always on that website. Uh, access to the apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just 6 bucks plus the exclusive tote. Go to NewYorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter. Moment. So here's a question, and you can answer this as how you thought or what you've noticed in entrepreneurs. Because it ties into the way, um, in a very small way, how I think, uh, what I've experienced as a, a, a storyteller. And that is, like, what does it feel like to have hold two versions of the world in your head at the same time? That is, 
the way the world is and the way that it's going right, to be. Right, right, right. You're Because you're kind of living in two yep. different worlds at the same time. Yep. So how have you seen that manifest and how did it manifest for you? Yeah, so this is the the line we use is the, the, the difference between a vision and a hallucination. Yes, right? talk about and, that, and what's, please. And what's the, diff- what's, the, what's the difference between a vision and a hallucination is other people can see the vision. When though? Uh, well, that's the question, right? So, so, yeah, so, so what's the time horizon? Well, that's the thing. And so the, the way we think about this, the abstract way we think about this is, is it's the best entrepreneurs, they really do live in the future. It's actually, I think, a little bit like the best artists. The, the, the yes. best entrepreneurs live in the future. They actually can already envision, like at some point, they maybe don't have it at the very, very beginning because you're often starting to scratch your own itch just to yes. start. But like at some point, you're like, okay, like I'm going to put this thing out. Everybody's going to, everybody's going to like it. Like everybody's going to, everybody's going to enjoy. Everybody's going to use it. Like at some point, it's going to take. And I can, I can sort, I can start to. And we did start to develop this over time. You can start to feel like, okay, this, this could be something that could really matter. This could, this could be really big. And you start to kind of live in the world in which it's sort of already happened. Yes, that's what I mean right. about yeah. two. You're living yeah. in two realities yeah. at the same time. Yeah. But then you have to come back to, you know, you wake up every morning in the world in which it hasn't yet happened. Yeah, you got to still. <laughs> right. Oatmeal or whatever. You know, put your pants on. Did you find it distracting, inspiring? Yeah, inspiring. I mean, I think for the, I think for the for the for the good on it's almost always. Well, let's put it this way. Um, it's in, it's inspiring when it works. <laughs> yes, and and it's very frustrating when it doesn't. Yes, because then it's almost like a whole world has died. Yeah, yeah. This way. whole future that you were able to envision. And and, and by the way, the, every entrepreneur views that like they're they're doing something to make the world better. Like you don't people don't go through the effort. And you viewed that just, when you were building the web. Bra- when yeah. you had this idea, you did some part of you thought no, nobody does a creative endeavor. Nobody nobody does a creative endeavor. That's right. Um, and thinking, boy, this is going to make the world worse. I can't wait to see how bad I can make the world. Well, can you talk about the difference between having a dream and having uh like sort of chasing your personal passion and then ha- personal contribution like. Like deciding that your dream is use has utility beyond yep. yourself. Yeah. So this is something where Ben Ben actually gave a commencement speech where he he and I developed this jointly, but he gave the speech and riled riled a bunch of people up. So basically, um, our our view uh, is that the follow your passion thing is like an incredibly destructive meme that is sort of flows out of the kind of hippie movement of the '60s. And you have to define passion. Passion. For me I, I, I um I have a internalized view of myself and what I am on planet Earth to do. Um, I have to express myself as a take your pick a musician, an author, writer, a programmer, a basket weaver a whatever it happens to be an organic farmer like what wh- whatever the thing that's my passion and it's my pa- my pa- passion it's a it's 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 me it's about me it's a it's a it's a it, there's our view of it it's a self-centered view of the world this is what's going to make me happy this is what my calling is this is the thing that's going to actualize me and if i can actually if i can if i can follow my passion then i will be validated right and i will be a success within my own psyche and if i can't i'll be frustrated and angry and bitter and all the rest of it and the problem is is that like it, so the problem is like that it goes back to our earlier discussion it, like it takes as given that the rest of the world is going to appreciate your passion right and like i said like the rest of the world is busy like maybe they will and maybe they won't um and so the way we always encourage people to think about it is it, it, it's 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 basically follow the the area in which you can make a contribution so it's not about you it's about other people it's 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 the, the non-selfish version of it. the non-selfish version of it is what can i do that's going to make other people's lives better right what can i do that's going to be of service and of value to them Right, and then and then the question, right, is okay. Well, then how am I going to know? Well, because they're going to actually, they're going to they're going to buy it. Like, how about that? They're going to pay money for so, it. Yeah, it you're not saying thing. don't try your passion. You're saying measure. Well, it sounds to me you're saying measure. But I don't think it's passion. I don't think it's your. I think the. I think your passion. May, I think your passion is an inherently self-centered view, and I think that's. You think it's destructive to think to the individual to think about it yes. as scratching a passion itch. Yes. I think it but even leads... though aren't the best engineers dissatisfied by something, oh, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they have to try to make it better? Yeah, but this—that's the difference. They're, they're, they're making it better is making it better is not just I wrote the code. It, making it better is everybody now uses the code. 
Right. And, and that, that maybe that sounds, especially for people who are already highly successful, it sounds like those are the same thing. It, you, get, you get this thing in the advice industry, right, in which you get a lot of self-selected advice. You know, you know a, lot of the, a lot of the how to succeed books, is, it's like step one, be successful, right? Yeah, but well, it's what goes back to Steve Martin. Right. How, how can I uh, <laughs> uh, be a millionaire and never pay taxes? Right. Step one, get a million dollars. That's what he says <laughs> exactly. in the old Steve exactly. Martin routine. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Step one, get a million dollars. Right. And so, so anyway, the, the point being like, it's just what, what I just find with a lot of people, it's not that there's nothing to the passion idea. It's just with a lot of people, it, it, it leads to, if they exercise their passion, if the world does not then automatically appreciate their passion, it leads to, it leads to bitterness and resentment and envy and anger. And it just leads people to, it's, it's, it's very sabotaging. And philosophically, I would say, of course it's sabotaging because it's self-centric. Because we're not we're not islands like we we're not the, the the world is not just a bunch of disassociated individuals like we 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 are we are a society. No, it is a loop, right? Writing billions made me incredibly happy, and I do say in the writing is the ha- in the writing alone or with Dave, but in the writing, that is in a way the happiest that it gets. Okay. Other than, but then, that's the one sort of. Um, that's the just purely sort of sort of pure emotion, and you're right. That is a it's if it's selfish, but but the fact that it's then I get the feedback that it, yeah. it's it, it's um, making people happy. People watch it. And really, love it. They what tell you, elevates. They watch it and it's in the numbers, and the, yeah, you know, it's like it's like. And then, by the way, then by the way, then that's how you get the money, and then the money is what you use to do more of what you. Yes. Uh, quote, unquote, well, uh, yeah. About. I mean, like, I, I mean, I do, there's like not only is there nothing wrong with that, there's something really right about that. I mean, I do encourage people to chase the passion because I think if they don't, they become uh, also become bitter. But again, these things are all like what does Ferris call it? Um, the minimal effective dose. And so the, the minimal effective dose might be keep your job, do your thing, and you work a half hour a day to figure out if your passion is going to lead yeah. to this contribution. But I guess I'd say, I think, I think I, I always found it natural. Maybe I'm just, maybe this is the Midwesterner in me. I always found it natural to say like, look, my creative output, like it is, it is right and appropriate and proper for it to be evaluated by other people. Right. Like I would like to know that other people, what other people think of it. I would like to know that they appreciate it. I would like to see that they use it. I would like to see that it has. Okay, but how does that life. square with your, with the fact that you hold, like how does that square with willingness to make bets that go against what the majority think. Oh, okay. So can you yeah. talk about those, right? Because you're actually not ceding power to those right, people. That's right, that's right. So quite, talk quite, about quite that the opposite. We talk about this a lot. So this is the old uh, Steve Jobs thing. Uh, nobody ever asked for a Macintosh. Right. So so this is this is the thing. There, this is actually another kind of dysfunction you see among some startup founders. Some big big companies often have this dysfunction, which is, I actually saw this when I was at IBM. They had, they had this problem uh, in, the, in the 90s. It was, we're going to do what the customer wants. We're a customer-centric organization. Right, because that's not what you're saying. I, right. No, it's not what I'm saying at all. Right. Because, and, and because the customers don't know what they want. The cust- nobody ever asked for a Macintosh. Nobody ever asked for a car. I mean, people were on horses and they thought they were fine. Nobody asked for an automobile. Nobody asked, I can tell you, nobody asked for the internet. Like nobody, like they didn't know. They didn't know. Why didn't they know? Well, it's not their job to know. Let's just say people are busy. Like, and I this is very much as a human nature thing. People are busy. People have their own lives. They got their own priorities. They got their own things. They're not sitting around dreaming up new product ideas that they hope somebody else builds. Right. They're just not doing it. And so you have to, you, you do have to, you have to invent it and you have to bring it to them. But without the attitude of, you know, I now get to dictate to you, right, how you receive it, right? But so how does that square with this idea of people yeah. evaluating it? Like, how do you know that, right? Because I guess it's easier to language for somebody internally. I have a feeling and, and, and uh, I'm going to exercise my passion than it is to have the belief yeah. 
in a contra- in their ability to contribute. Yeah, sure. So how do you square well, those Well, the belief in the ability to contribute is just like, okay, it's almost like a spirit of generosity. Can I envision that there are people, right, who are otherwise busy? Can I envision, you know, for you, I can envision there are people who are like TV fans and they're watching TV shows and they really like TV shows. And can I envision that I might be able to make a TV show that they might enjoy more than the ones they're already watching? And would, and would that make their life? Yeah, and the answer is like, yeah, they probably would. But when you do something that, that there is no analog for sure. previously, yeah. In the beginning, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, uh, most people get no, a lot of collect many rejections oh, or no's. Yeah. So how does reject? So 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 talk a little bit about this, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Because how does someone not? I don't want someone to misinterpret what you're yeah. saying as, hey, if you poke your head out and someone takes a whack at it, you are in the wrong line of work, right? But so how do you balance those ideas? How do you square this idea that you're going to run through a lot of rejections before success with? hey, make sure you check to mark the market to make sure you're getting some positive reinforcement. Right. How do those things square? So Sean Parker says, uh, for tech startups, Sean Parker says the thing about tech startups is they're like chewing glass. Eventually you start to like the taste of your own blood, right? <laughs> right? Like there's a marketing of like tech startups is like a glamorous thing. And I actually, I actually don't agree with that uh, for the most part. Like they are actually brutally, brutally difficult. Um, and, and it goes back to the test that we talked about. You are every single day as a startup founder, you're trying to get I- employees to join you who have many other options. Most of them are telling you no. You're trying to get customers to test your product or buy your product. They, they're busy. They have other stuff going on. Most of them tell you no. You're trying to raise money. Most of the, you know, <laughs> most of the VCs tell you no. Like generally, it's just generally all day long as a tech founder is no, 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 no. And, and so what is, do you have to tell yourself? You what to, do you have to tell yourself if, that uh, eventually they, they'll see that I am contributing? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, they're wrong. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's actually sort of an interesting thing. Number one, there, there has to be a part, this is the chip, this is where the chip on the shoulder comes in handy. There has to be a thing of like, basically screw them. Like, I, I know I'm right and I know they're wrong, or at least I have a strong idea in, in that direction and I'm, I'm willing to fight my way through it. And by the way, it's like, you know, it's like at some point you realize the no's aren't killing you, right? Like it's- Yes. Right, and that, that's, yes. Like, that's like a big- you know, and this is kind of, the th- it's also why, by the way, it's really good for engineers to learn sales is because salespeople hear no for a living, right? Like, you know, a friend of mine once is a VC now, but he's a, he's a fearless kind of sales oriented personality. And I, he actually figured out what happened. He got a job in high school selling steak knives door to door. And he did that, you know, for two years. And I mean, then the best that ever is is second prize, as you know. <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. But it's like 99 out of 100 times he gets the door slammed in his face. Because like, who wants to buy steak knives in the middle of the afternoon from like a 16 year old kid? But you know, every once in a while he would sell a set. Any other challenge he put in front of himself is, is really easy because it doesn't have that level of rejection. And so at some point you get comfortable with the rejection. So that, that's like an attitudinal thing. And then the other thing is, look, you, you do get feedback. Like, you know, sometimes you are not, you know, sometimes it isn't quite right, right? And you know, there, and there's, because there, there's two sides to it. The customer didn't ask for a Macintosh, but once they got their hands on a Macintosh, they had lots of feedback. Like the thing is too slow, it's too expensive, it's this, it's that, the screen should sure, be color. You like can a, take that feedback. You can take and, the feedback, right? And again, it's the spirit of generosity. Like if they're giving you the, if they're giving you the feedback in the spirit of, okay, this is very promising but it's not quite right for me yet because of X, Y, Z. Like that's generosity on their part. Did you have to train yourself to handle the criticism or were you just naturally good at processing it? Because some people crumble. Like I know I had to train myself. I think it was, it was literally, it was the, it was the wired, the wired thing. It was, it was so, it was so universally accepted. It was even when I actually even, even got out here, even in 94, it was so universally, it was so universally accepted that the internet was not going to be a thing that I kind of had gotten used to it. So I come out here, I, I, you know, my, one of my great kind of strokes of luck in my life was meeting my partner, Jim Clark. And so, and so he was a legendary founder at the time. And so he and I decided to start a, a company 
And so, and which became Netscape. And you might think, oh, it's an obvious idea, browser company, like most obvious thing in the world. It's like, no, that wasn't what happened at all. Because we knew the internet was not going to be a big deal. Because, you know, this is like not just Wired Magazine. This is Time Magazine. This is the New York Times. And it's the endless litany of experts and politicians and everybody and big company executives. Yeah, and Microsoft didn't Microsoft, think Microsoft and Oracle and all these companies are just like, this thing's a joke. Like, this thing's absurd. And um, it's going to be these, these other things. And so we actually tried to start a, at the, at the time, version one, we tried to start an interactive TV software company. Because everybody, all the experts said that was going to be the thing. And Jim's previous company was actually building a lot of these interactive TV systems. And so we tried to start a company to do that. We actually, that took us kind of in contact with the actual market. We then went out and kind of did a market survey of like, okay, how many interactive TV systems are actually alive? How many of them are actually working? And the answer was zero. So we're like, okay, wait, like, hold on a second. Like, this, this is not actually, like, we actually... Peter Thiel talks about the concept of a secret. Uh, this is like the thing that you believe that that's correct that nobody else believes. And like the secret actually turned out to be interactive TV was not a thing. There's an ocean of marketing. I love that. Tony Gilroy talks about the secret thing too on my side of the street. That yeah, having a special secret. Yeah. When you have it, when you know it, your idea is worth doing, it's when it feels like it's this special secret that you have and everyone's going to freak out when it shows up. Right. He yeah. talks about that. Yeah. And, and it's often, it's often, it's, it's not even so much you're right about somebody, something everybody else is wrong about. Um, it's more like they can't even possibly believe like, it's inconceivable that it could be true. Like, a lot of these things are actually sitting there in plain sight. It's just the conventional wisdom becomes so strong. It's sort of it's bucking the conventional wisdom in kind of the, the right way. So so we concluded, like, that wasn't going to happen. Then we basically had the idea of, uh, we we're not the only ones, but we had the idea for what today might be called Xbox Live or PlayStation Network sort of, you know, interactive gaming. And Nintendo was coming out with this great new the Nintendo 64, uh, which is like a real computer uh, for a gaming console for the first time. And so we said, let's build a gaming interactive gaming network, an online service for Nintendo 64. But then we looked at that, and the Nintendo 64 wasn't going to come out for two years and then who even knew if it was going to work and so that was not going to be a thing and so we actually we actually used process of elimination to work our way back to like i guess it's going to have to be the internet like <laughs> like the internet's the only it's the, the internet's the only thing that's actually working like it's the only thing that's actually working it's the only thing that actually has people using it it's the only thing that actually is growing it's the only thing that actually has people building content for it and it's being completely dismissed by the establishment but it's actually working and that that's actually one of the great themes of 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 our time in venture capital, which is like the best case scenario for us is the thing that's working that everybody's laughing at. Like that's, that, that's our catnip. Right. And even if it's a small, even yeah, I'm trying, what I'm thinking when you were saying is, is so the industry's saying no, yeah. but if you get little blips, you can take your encouragement. Yeah. In very micro doses. Well, and in, in, yes, that's correct. And then, but and in particular, what you're looking for is, in that case, you're looking for the feedback loop. Yes, engagement. Engagement. So you're looking one user's recommending to the next, recommending to the next, recommending to the next, or you're looking for the, the or the two way feedback loop, which we had with the browser and the web server. Yes. Um, computers had this in the old days. The you knew the the, the Mac was going to work when every time somebody bought a Mac, it made it more likely somebody would build a piece of software for the Mac. Every new piece of software made it more likely somebody would buy a Mac. So it's it's a, it's, the, it's called the network effect yes. of an operating system. And so and so and. And you don't, you know. Seth Godin talks about a ratchet, ratcheting up, ratcheting yeah, up, ratcheting yeah, exactly. up. exactly. Virtuous cycle, right, kind of thing. And so, they, and to be fair, they just because you see them early doesn't mean they all get big. Like, that's not that's not the, how the world works. They don't all get there. But all of the ones that got big started, right, with that kind of small initial, as you say, microdosing yes. <laughs> of, of the feedback. And so, and then in our business, you know, there's asymmetric risk return. Um, and so, um, so basically, um, you, you want to find the thing where you, you do have some evidence, of, you have early evidence that it's going to have that kind of, kind of phenomenon. And then everybody laughing at it is awesome because that means it's out of consensus, right? Um, and that, that means it's like, it, it, like people literally do not believe in it. And then, and then as a consequence, like if it does work, if it keeps growing, there will be an inversion at some point and all of a sudden the entire world will go, 
oh. Yes. Right? And at that point, it becomes like immediately gigantically valuable. Well, this is right? one of my favorite Hollywood quotes ever. Do you know the Jack Nicholson quote when the, he saw the, the this this agent? Do you know, do you know it? Where they, they said to him, uh, we might not need you. But when we need you, we're going to need you really badly. Right, right, right. We're really going to need you. <laughs> right. Like you're going to be completely not hireable. Right. And then suddenly you're going to be the biggest movie star in the world. And that I, that must repeat itself. All right. Let's do a little zip recruiter business, which is fun to do. Look, hiring is challenging. I know it because I'm always hiring people for the show. I'm hiring writers. And there is not the equivalent of zip recruiter to hire writers to work in your writer's room. So yeah, hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing business connect to qualified candidates. That place, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. Look, ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective. 80% of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to Higher. Just a couple more things. Uh, you once told me, I think like the first time we met, that you love to be proven wrong. That one of the things you love is to have a, a core convinced ideology about something and then to be able to accept in a flash that, can you talk a little bit about that? About why that's valuable and about how you either trained yourself or just were, were that way and what the, what the gains are of living that way? So I would say, start by saying it's aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sure. So I've actually tried to figure out why this is. So people treat their ideas like their children. And I, I've actually tried, I've actually gone back, I've been reading, doing a lot of reading like psychology and neurology. Well, a to lot of behavioral out. science is about, uh, behavioral economics is about this idea yeah. of that we we fall in love with yeah. the, you know, we get we get wed to this yeah. thing. So I think I finally, I've done enough reading. I think I finally figured out why this is the case. I think it literally is. It seems like we're treating our ideas like our children. We, I think we're literally treating our ideas like they're our children. So I think you, I think it's an evolutionary thing. I think in the evolutionary context in which we our, our genetics were developed, right? Because our genetics are unchanged over the last 50,000 years, effectively. 50,000 years ago, there weren't really ideas. There were just children, <laughs> right? Like you're not sitting around the campfire speculating on like abstract theories of life. You're like trying to get through the freaking day and then you've got this infant and you're desperately trying to keep the infant alive. And so we've got this like, there's something- the territorial protectiveness. Yeah, like this is my thing. This is my offspring. This is my legacy. This is my, this is everything valuable and important to me is like right here in my hands and it's gonna die without me. And like, my God, I have to like emotionally lock in on it and I have to do all these irrational things, you know, to protect it. Like, and you, you know, anybody's had kids, like you, you change your entire priority ordering like neurologically changes when you have kids. So basically it, I, I think literally what happened is I literally we now now we live in a world of ideas we weren't like you know it's weird like the whole concept of ideas comes from kind of rationality which was somehow showed up in our wiring but like we're still we still have this kind of legacy wiring and the legacy wiring basically says okay now this idea is my, my kid like this is the thing I believe in I want to protect I want to foster I want to nurture I want to grow <laughs> it's part of my passion and then it's like and then anytime that that idea gets challenged it's, you get you get the threat response of somebody challenging your kid and you know you get your you get that you feel it you feel it in your like limbic system less like your, your pulse rises your, your your back you know gets up your you know you flush you know people get you know as you start to get people get defense you know defensive you get the defensive reaction and it's like why the why are you defending an abstract idea 
Like nothing's going to happen to you. <laughs> right, but you're but right yet, about what it feels like. You act like it. So, right? so and, and how so, do you go look for that then? So here's the problem. So here's the problem is like most of your ideas are wrong. Yeah, like, like well, let's say, especially, let's say, especially if you're in my business, and let's even say, especially if you're me, like most of the ideas are wrong. And so at some point, the thing I figured out, I started doing the back test. They were called in, in finance, you call the back test, which is basically like, okay, I'm going to take whatever algorithm or system I have for trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future, whatever set of rules I've derived on kind of how the world works and how to predict things. I'm going to go back and back test. I'm going to imagine, you know, my business. I'm going to imagine Larry Page and, and, and Sergey Brin walk in the door and they pitch Google. And, and, and this is difficult because at the surface level, it'd be like Google, obvious, dot whatever. But like it actually turns out there were a bunch of VCs, a bunch of very smart VCs who turned on Google. And, and I know so that- Can I just historically, was AltaVista already a thing? Yes. So AltaVista was the default oh, yeah, yeah. and Ask Jeeves, were those the two? All these, there were, th- were those the Google, two? Google was like number 35. Okay. Well, and I'll just tell you there oh, were- Yahoo, I guess. There those. were two things everybody knew about search engines. Explain. Yahoo was in the business, Yahoo was in the business, other people were in the Two things everybody knew. One is they all suck. Like there's no way to make a good one, right? Because yeah. the, the internet- that was a a core rule that everyone believes. Yeah, yeah, they're all trash. Fascinating. Like, like they just, they don't yeah. work. Like, because the internet's like messy. And so you just can't organize, like, you know, and there's all this, you know, weird stuff out there and you just can't, like, it doesn't work. And then even if it works, you absolutely, there's no way to make money on it. It's not possibly going to be a business. There's just, there's just no way. And, 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 and so the, the view of search at the time was literally search, search at the time, there was actually the business model was it was a loss leader for the portal business. Um, and it was literally a loss leader and that you actually, like, you actually had to spend money to provide a search engine that you, you lost money on. Because they weren't advertising so no, on search? Well, well, there was average, it was like a banner ad, but it wasn't, they didn't have the, the AdWords, the AdWords model didn't exist yet, right? And so that hadn't yet been invented. Um, and so literally, like, and I have friends who, like, I have friends who were very successful VCs who passed on Google, and part of it was, like, there's no business model. Like, this is, this is, this thing is just going to burn money forever. It's never going to make any money. And, they, and the guys had no theory on how to make, how to make, how to make money when they started the thing. And so it's like, so the back test is like, okay, apply all your fancy theories today of how you evaluate businesses, and then congratulations, you just missed Google. <laughs> right. Like, give yourself a pat on the back. Well done. And, and the purpose of the back test is to make you be open to having your, Assumptions question. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Is that it's, it's really, it's like an epistemic, it's the limits of your knowledge. Like, how much can you actually know? Like, what, what's your basic operating model? Like, well, I would take it so far as to say, I don't know that there actually are VCs that can predict whether any given thing is going to succeed or fail, period, full stop, including us. Like, I'm not even sure that's actually part of the value we provide. I actually think that might, that might literally be zero of our contribution to the entire process. And, and I say that of like, we have, we have no sure. That's what you make decision. Isn't that well, what you make a decision no, based maybe on? Maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Talk a little more about well, that. Maybe we're actually in the people business as opposed to the ideas business. And maybe what we should be trying to sniff out are the people. And maybe the point of sniffing out the people is the people are going to be the ones who are going to go figure all this stuff out. Right. So uh, I read a paper that also helped. How me. are the people? Mark Andreessen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a great VC. There's a legendary VC and Arthur Rock from the 60s through the 90s who funded Intel and Apple. And like he was like one of the main, he was, he was like a huge, hugely important figure of the era and still is a very highly respected person. Uh, he wrote a paper uh, at the end of his venture career, um, and he analyzed his results. Uh, and you know, and, and there's there's two ways to make mistakes in venture capital. There's the I fund something that fails, and then there's the I don't fund something that succeeds, right? And it actually turns out the asymmetry of risk return. I fund something that fails is really not a problem. I don't fund something that succeeds really problem. is a problem. Yeah, sure, right. And so he analyzed his returns, and he concluded after 30 years of venture, uh, he concluded he would have had better results had he shredded all the business plans um, upon receipt and never read them and only worked against the resumes. Only worked. 
worked against the resumes, right? Uh, and say against the people, right? Yes. If he had just purely been evaluating the people, he would have makes he complete he sense he, to he, me. He, he would have done much better. Of course, that begs the whole question of how do you evaluate the people. But the point is, like, it, it may not be a predictive model against the ideas. I'll give you another one: eBay. Like a lot of people believe they could have they could have funded eBay. Well, it's like okay, you need to picture 1995. Right. You've got how about how about we do this? How about somebody how about somebody wants to buy something on the internet so badly that they go to the post office and they buy a money order, which is the only way to pay for things on eBay when it got venture funded. And then let's imagine somebody wants to buy something so much that they're going to send the money order to the person who claims to be selling it. Right. And then that person is actually going to send send. I remember thing. eBay seemed crazy to you. I remember being really nervous to use eBay the first time I used Absolutely. it. I remember being really nervous about it. Like, wait, I don't understand. I did, you know, then something I had already, something made me take a leap. I remember being like, this seems nuts. Well, one of the jokes, one of the jokes of the internet industry today is basically they're all things that adults always told you not to do. Like, do not get in a car with strangers. Right. Right. Lyft and Uber. Yeah, of course. Right? Do not like stay at a stranger's house. Right. Overnight. Airbnb. Airbnb. Right. Do not send people money in the mail. Right. Without knowing whether they're going to Well, when someone the makes product, the right? um, eye crossing app, then we're really going <laughs> to, exactly. then we're really going to kill it. Exactly. But by the way, for sure, don't go on a date with somebody you meet online because that's, right. that's just bad. That's it, a horrible that, That's just for it. Right. The point of the back test basically is like, okay, test your own bullshit of like, okay, like I now have all these rules. Okay, so now apply the back. And the back test basically says is like these rules, like they're not, they're, they're only so useful, right? And, and there's only so much you can assume. And so therefore, but, but at the same time, so that, that's part one, at the same time, you, you can't just then go into a mode of like, okay, everything's ambiguous, I don't know, and you just shrug on everything, right? You, you can't have no point of view because then you won't be able to differentiate between anything. And so where we've come out is we, 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 what we call it is we call it strong views weekly held. And so it's like, that. let's have a very strong point of view that's going to kind of guide our search kind of through the landscape and tell us kind of what to focus on based on some theory that we've developed. But then let's be really open to the disconfirming evidence that basically says that. And then let's be willing to do the complete one. And then the other side, the people piece, and we can end talking about this is, I guess, when those companies, what's the term you guys, when someone starts a company that's supposed to do something and then they realize it's supposed to be something else? These days, it's called the pivot. Right, the pivot. In my well, era, it was called the fuck up. Right, that's funny. <laughs> right, the pivot. So, but like Slack was a different business, right? right but right. you were, so is that an example where betting on the person, is that one of the things that you've now, oh, you go, well, well we were totally wrong about the business. Yeah. But we were totally right that um, this guy, Stuart, right? Stuart. Is, that yeah. Stuart, Stuart. Yeah. was going to figure it out. Yeah, that's right. So this is part of the payoff, part of the payoff of, of betting on the best people, if you can figure out what that, who, who they are. Part of the payoff is they will get you to the promised land. Not always, but they'll have a pretty good chance. You know, they, they, they will. They're, right, they're injecting into the complex adaptive system that is the world. They are going to get all kinds of feedback, including your idea is dumb and is never going to work. Like, and it genuinely isn't going to work, which is the feedback Stuart got, um, which we could talk about. And then they're going to have the wherewithal, psychology, motivation, all the rest of it to be able to skill, talent, leadership ability, right? Because uh, they got to bring people with them. Yes, right? to, yes. Be, to be able to get to the other yeah, thing. Yeah, especially, okay, oh, this is really good. Yeah. And we can, because um, I'm, I'm, I have no idea how this would work. So you've witnessed it and been a part of it. You know, you've led a group of people, you've raised money and you've marched, you've made the assault. Yep. And then you look up and every, you know, the arrows are through everybody's chest. Yep. How how do you counsel people and how does the pivot actually, because all of us can, it ties into this emotional connection to our idea. Right. How do you teach and talk about to a founder who you still think, a founder who's actually in the failure proven to you, they still have it. Right. How do you talk about what it means to pivot and what inner resources are required 
to pivot? And then what do you see your role as in helping them pivot? Right. So I would say there's a couple different situations. So every once in a while you work with a founder who just gives up too quick. And we in there, you gotta encourage them to keep going because it's just too early. We try not to work with, you know, we try, we're not big into this fail fast thing. So we think failing fast involves failing and we think failing is horrible. So yeah, we, let's not if we, we don't like it. that part of it. So generally we don't work with, we don't generally have that problem. Um, sometimes the easy case is you'll have somebody who'll come to you and say like, I think we got feedback from the market. I think it's not gonna work. Help me figure out. And, that, and that's- and Help me figure out with the tools we have, yeah, what else we can do. How to get there. And, and, and then usually they're asking us like, will you support us through this process? And the answer is usually yes. If, if, they've, if they've comported themselves well, Right. If they've been honest and ethical and you know all the rest of the things you expect from a professional, then generally we'll we'll let we'll let them go take you know, a second or third swing, you know, for as long as the money lasts. And then there's kind of the hardest case, which is um, and we've had these where it's like it's like year four, year five, year six, the thing's not working and they don't want to quit. They don't want to give up. And they really should. <laughs> and the reason they really should is because fundamentally, the reason they really should, they're not, they're not going to be able to hold the team. Right. Like best case, they're going to be out there by themselves still pursuing the thing. And th these are team sports. And so they're not going to be able to hold the people. And so basically, you've, you've got in practice these started. You've got four or five years in practice to get one of these th things to work. And it doesn't work after that. How did the Slack pivot happen? So the Slack, part of it is Stuart had done it before. So this was his second time doing it. The first, his first big success was called Flickr. Flickr was another one of these where it was Flickr, Flickr was a pivot. So part of it is Stuart's actually a world expert. In pivoting. He's now done this twice. He's a world expert on the topic. His technique, uh, he did it. I would say he, we supported him doing it, but he, he, he deserves all the credit. Um, he uses the bottle of Irish whiskey strategy, which is, uh, he's Irish. And so he, uh, gets, out, he literally like shows up with the team and he's like, gets out the bottle of whiskey and pours everybody shots. Um, <laughs> that's the state change. Yeah. 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 It's like, I'm going to tell you the truth. And like the truth, and the, tr the truth at that point was we built this desktop video game called Glitch that is completely dependent on this technology called Flash. And the reality is Steve Jobs just decided to put a bolt in Flash. He's not going to support it on the iPhone. Like it's done. And the reality is like all this work we put into it for the last, you know, three years or whatever, like it's for nothing. It's for zero. Like bad news here, have another drink. Um, and it's like, we, and then basically we now have a choice. You know, we, we are tribe, right? Um, now it's a paleolithic component to this. Our, our, our hunting party now has a choice. You know, do we quit? Right? Do we give up? Uh, and all disperse and go to different things and join different tribes? Or, you know, do we think we have an idea and the motivation to pursue something different? And it turns out they had this, in both of his pivots, they had the core of the new thing figured out. They, they had developed the Slack collaboration system as a way to help them all work together. That when, was an internal thing for themselves. It was an internal tool. And then did he come to you and show you that? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, well, it wasn't so much even to show us. It was more just like, I have this idea. Um, I think, I, you know, I mean, yeah, he showed. But I mean, it's it fundamentally like, I have an idea. I think this could be a thing. And you guys were just still willing to bet on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there was there was a, there's actually a famous case. So this is where Twitter came from, by the way. This is this, the same thing. So so Twitter was not a startup. Um, the startup was called Odeo. And Odeo actually was podcasting. So the, there's, I would tell you, the story of a podcasting app called Odeo that uh, went to market 10 years before podcasting became a big deal. And nobody, and this was like pre-iPhone, pre-Bluetooth headset, like pre-5G 5G networks. Like, so you had to like download the podcast on your MP3 player. It was just too early for the podcast. So, so Ev Williams and Jack Dorsey and these, these, these people created, created this thing called Odeo. It flatlined. They worked and worked and worked. And then they had this little idea on the side of Twitter, TWTTR, based on Jack's experience as a bicycle messenger of all right. things, right? Um, it was basically short messaging. Uh, it was called in computer science called publish subscribe messaging. So it was, an, it was a known computer science idea, but it had never been built into a consumer service before. And so they had this thing on the side. And so they, Ev went, Ev was the CEO. He went back to his VCs and he said, you know, you have a choice. I'll give you your money back. I'll give you the remaining money back. Um, or you can roll it into this new thing called Twitter. And, and the legend is one of the venture firms said, yes, uh, let's roll it. The other venture firm took the money back. You know, and, it, which turned into like and so a, how did it just end turn here? Into today? If you, they had they you know, that today, that's like a five billion dollar difference in outcomes, right? Just for that venture firm. Did the other firm survive? Uh, they're 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 still yeah, they're still alive. 
Now, look, everybody makes mistakes. It's just, it just, it basically, the, the only moral of the story there was, look, if you've got an Ev Williams, if you've got a Stuart Butterfield, and if you're, you're not, we're not talking about, you're not talking about a half billion dollars rolling And um, Were you we're evaluating about, someone, when Stuart came to you, just to end this, because uh, uh, when Stuart came to you, are you and Ben and your team, hey, I, this, uh, the thing we all signed on to do isn't working. I have this new idea. How much of your time is spent crunching the idea versus how much of it is right? So it's all just you went, yes, Stuart, keep going. And so part of it is just the idea is right in the center of how we, the, the idea is right in the center of our idea universe. Sure. It's a, it's a message. It's a, it's a, mess, it's a collaboration messaging service. And Ben and I, we've, we, Netscape, we built the, like I've, I've been working on those for a long time. So we kind of knew that general, it was a plausible idea. It wasn't cold fusion. It was right. a totally, totally plausible idea. And then Stuart's just had, at that point had become a very known quantity. And it wasn't even so much, part of it is we, we thought Stuart had acquitted himself very well, including the fact that he was willing to make this change. And come to and say it's over. Yeah. And he was very clear with us, right? And, and very respectful of us. And he, so he was great. But also we knew him from Flickr. So we have the concept of game film. Right, the best the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, and we knew we knew that he we knew we knew he that knew he, he could had, do it. He had actually been through this exact situation before. He'd come out the other end with Flickr, which was a great achievement. So it's like of, of all that was the easy one because of all the people in the world to bet on to do this, Stuart's the obvious one. Well, Mark, um, I'm so grateful that you spent this time. Thank you, man. Uh, great to talk to you. Mark is on Twitter, but the, the most you're going to get is to see things that he likes. That's not, it. Not anymore, man. Total stealth mode. You don't even like things I anymore? The, I, am the, I am the Soviet nuclear submarine. There's that, there, even that guy, the guy who constantly says what you like, he's had to stop. Under he's the had Arctic to Circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the bot, right. P. Mark Alex bot is in. Is That's in, is, done? He's on hiatus. I would always crack up when I would get one of the, you know, if you would like one of my tweets and then suddenly I would see this thing. I was like, what is the, what is this bot? So you can't find Mark online, sorry, but you can read about him in books and maybe if he makes another podcast appearance somewhere in his own podcast. A16z.com. And, and what's your podcast? And the A16z podcast. Which a I'm on. Available um, on every I'll podcast player, I'll be on player, next please. Saturday. Yes. So this should go up Tuesday. This is going to go up Tuesday. That should be uh, up uh, on Saturday, me on Mark's, uh, the podcast he does with Sonal. So, all right, everybody, you can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can write me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Do not send me a proposal to get some Mark injuries and I will throw it out. And don't send me a screenplay because I'll also throw that out. But if you're friends with any like screenwriters or VCs, maybe we'll be able to do something. All right, everybody. Thanks. See you next time. Bye.